Good morning, everyone. Um, good morning. I hope everyone um, has had a great evening and a great conference so far. Uh, my name is Chad Jackson. I'm the Senior Director of the tran uh, Preclinical Translational Research Program at the Foundation Fighting Blindness, and I'll be your moderator today. Um, this session is the clinical and research update for retinitis pigmentosa. So if you think you should be somewhere else, uh, <laughs> probably right down the hallway. Um, this session will last approximately 85 minutes, and the last 20 minutes of the session will be reserved for questions from the audience. However, I believe our speakers today maybe um, will, will speak probably a little bit less and want to engage with you more, so get your questions ready. Please note this session is being audio recorded. If you are using an assisted listening device, please turn to channel, someone please yell it out, five. Turn to channel five. And don't forget to silence your cell phone. The speakers for this session are Drs. Rachel Huckfeld and Jamie Kern. And um, as I'm introducing you, could you uh, please come to the stage? Uh, Dr. Huckfeld is an assistant professor of ophthalmology at Harvard Medical School and clinician scientist at Mass Eye and Ear. She completed her MD and PhD training at Washington University in St. Louis with a PhD focused on mechanism retinal development. After finishing an ophthalmology residency at Mass Ioneer, Dr. Huckfeld conducted postdoctoral research on novel therapeutics in the lab of Dr. Gene Bennett at the University of Pennsylvania, followed by clinical fellowships in medical retina at the University of Washington and inherited retinal disorders. Dr. Huckfeld's clinical practice focused on inherited retinal disorders and, and the medical management of retinal conditions. She is, she is dedicated to bringing new therapies to patients with inherited retinal disorders, and she's the principal investigator for MEEs participating in multiple first-in-human clinical trials of genetic therapies. Dr. Huckfeld is also the director of the Inherited Retinal Degenerations Fellowship at MEE and the incoming co-chair elect for the Foundation Fighting Blindness Consortium. Dr. Kern is the Chief Clinical Officer at Nacuity Pharmaceuticals, a clinically staged biomedical uh, pharmaceutical company developing treatments for diseases caused by oxidative stress. Nacuity's lead program applies a gene agnostic approach to treating RP and is currently enrolling patients with RP associated with Usher syndrome in an Australian multicenter clinical trial. Prior to joining the Nacuity team, Dr. Kern spent 15 years leading clinical development and medical affairs at Alcon. She earned a BA of Chemistry from Austin University, a PhD of Biomedical Science and Molecular Biology and Immunology um, from the UNC Health Science Center, and an MBA from TCU's Neely School. She is honored to have the opportunity to work with leading researchers and clinicians worldwide in the pursuit of improved clinical outcomes for patients with a variety of challenges. Dr. Kern remains very involved in her community, serving as in, on the board of the local um, independent school, mentoring doctoral students, and volunteering with nonprofits. Before we begin today, I would like to encourage you to be social with us. Can you please follow the Visions conversation on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and share your experiences using the conference hashtag Visions2022. Now we'll turn the floor over to the speaker. So, Dr. Huckfeld. Good morning. Thank you. This is my first in-person Visions meeting after being with all of you virtually in 2020, so it's, um, it's nice to be here. And there are a lot of tables up at the front for those of you coming in right now. Jamie and I um, want to make this session really focused on the topics that all of you are interested in. 
Um, so what we thought we would do is each start with brief intros um, and then really turn it over to all of you. So what I, what I have been thinking about um, since being here is just how much change there has been in the six years since I started an independent clinical practice focused on um, retinal dystrophies. When I was starting my practice and coming out of fellowship, we had like one or two clinical trials. Um, now we have a big team of clinical trial staff that keep, helps us with all of the things we're engaged in. And I think that is really a remarkable acceleration that obviously we need to go faster and higher and better. Um, but just to give you all a sense of the therapeutic and trial landscape right now and maybe as a launch pad for the rest of the session, um, there are so many different kinds of therapies being studied right now and trial opportunities for, study opportunities for people with RP and other retinal dystrophies. Starting really just at the observational natural history side of things. Um, and FFB gets you, you know a lot of credit, due credit here. Um, with the Clinical Research Consortium, there are ongoing natural history studies for RP due to variants in H2A and EYS. Um, also one for the uh, PCDH15 gene and um, more in the works. Those studies have ramifications beyond understanding those kinds of RP. They're helping us understand in, in relatively short windows of time, what are data measures in RP that change? What should we be looking for in uh, interventional clinical trials as, as meaningful, um, meaningful uh, outcomes based on the kinds of change we see in these natural history studies? So those are really important trials. There's going to be an upcoming opportunity, again, through FFB, um, for us, us as a community to collect very standard and unified information for people with RP and retinal dystrophies from a broad range of genetic causes. Um, so the UNIRARE study, which is coming uh, within the next six months, will mean that regardless of, with, with a few exceptions, regardless of what gene is causing your RP, you might get an invitation to join a cross-sectional study where um, we, again, take very specific data um, to help us understand RP and um, the different ways it affects vision in different genetic types of RP. And then we get into the interventional side of things. Um, as we'll hear about probably from Jamie, um, a growing range of neuroprotective therapies where it won't, we hope it doesn't matter what gene is causing your RP to gene-specific therapies, and this is where I think there's been so much acceleration. We um, are working on replacing genes, with, usually with viral vectors. We are working on actually editing the DNA you were born with, with CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing. And then we're working on changing how that DNA gets expressed into messenger RNA and then protein with antisense oligonucleotides. So that, that is a pretty big toolbox, and the nuances of that toolbox are growing um, year by year. And that's, again, where I reflect back on the six years that I've been in practice. That's where there's been so much change and development. And then we get to a whole other part of investigation, which I think is also so exciting, and that's 
um, restoring light sensitivity or rebuilding light sensitivity in the retina, whether that's with stem cells, whether that's with optogenetics, or whether that's with retinal prosthetics. Um, so a broad, broad range of strategies and efforts and trials that are underway. As we open things up to questions in a few minutes, um, Jamie and I will be happy to you know, answer whatever is of interest to you in that regard. I just was going to speak for a few minutes about what we're doing at Nacuity that might be interesting to you guys. We're very excited to have been in clinic for about two years now. Um, and we are looking at a gene-independent therapy that uses a small antioxidant molecule in order to preserve cone function. So this treatment will not have any effect on your rods, but we're very much hoping to preserve cone function while some of these other research efforts are moving forward and hopefully in concert we can work together to save your save vision. Um, the trial uh, is a, it, the, the treatment is an oral treatment, which is a little bit unique to ocular um, treatments, really. It's the first one I've worked on in a very long time. So it's a pill that you take and you take it every day. Um, and like I said, we've had patients in the trial now for almost two years. It'll be two years in September. Um, and we've learned a lot along the way about um, compliance and tolerability and the safety of the drug, which was really our primary concern at the beginning. But the exciting piece for us is that we will start looking at efficacy at the beginning of next year and hopefully we'll have a, a read on how things are going for these patients who have been on the drug for 18 to 24 months. Um, and actually um, it's kudos to the FFB and the team that's doing the Rush 2A study for helping us um, understand that that might be the right time point to look at with their natural history study. They've really given us some information that's super helpful to me in order to figure out when we can look and see um, if these interventions are making any difference in, in patients' vision. Um, so that study currently is happening in Australia um, just for basically regulatory and speed to clinic reasons, but we are planning to take our interim safety data, which we collected just recently. We're in the process of packaging it and um, amending our IND here in the U.S., and we're hoping that we will be in the U.S. with a clinical trial, either extension of this trial or a separate RP study um, next year. So we're hoping for that, and we will definitely be talking with you guys if we are. Um, and I think really, I just wanted to give a broad overview of what we're doing and then um, perhaps just open it up and, and see what, what's on your mind and, and what we can, what we can um, provide information on for you. I, if I see a question, but if I might pose a few questions first, just because I like to know my audience. Uh, um, who here is here from industry? Okay, a few lone hands. Um, and then I think I'll see more hands this time. Who has RP or is the loved one or supporter of someone with RP? Wonderful, thank you. And um, we do have mic runners, so if you have a question, please raise your hand and someone will bring you the microphone. We are recording the session, so please wait until you have the microphone until you ask your question. Good 
Good morning, and uh, thank you for your presentation. I'm Dan Day from the Orlando chapter of the foundation and on the board of trustees, and really appreciate your time and information today. My question is around endpoints, which I think you touched on a little bit, and we've heard quite a lot about that here at the conference. Uh, and as I understand it, when we say endpoints in general, we mean the things that, or the measures and metrics that FDA uses to say, uh, yes, you've, you've successfully reached this point, you can go on to the next phase or the next point in your trial. And as I understand the challenge of it, the, the FDA tends to use simplistic things sometimes, such as um, you know lines on an eye chart to, to measure whether you've been successful or not. But people with RP and retinal disease in general will, will mostly tell you, or will virtually all agree, that there are many things that can improve the way we see that can't be measured with something like lines on an eye chart. So my question about endpoints is, is there anything from a kind of grassroots perspective that we might do uh, if it makes any sense, like how would we lobby the FDA to be flexible about endpoints or to be open to hearing proposals that we might give them uh, for that? Um, that was such a, a well-stated question. Um, and I'll, I'll just flesh out the problem a little bit more, um, which is that to date, um, therapies for eye and vision problems have really relied on visual acuity as being the be-all, end-all measure of whether a treatment is successful. Um, we get that, that burden and that legacy in part because of trials for wet AMD using the uh, medications that are injected into the eye where that kind of improvement was possible. But RP and retinal dystrophies, they are different diseases um, than ones where acuity is a more reasonable endpoint. Um, so it is a challenge because at the same time, we, we want outcomes that are still robust and will still help us determine whether something is successful or not without compromising safety. Um, I think this is an area where uh, FFB is, is frankly really leading the way through studies or through endeavors like the Clinical Research Consortium. Because it's providing, I think it's bringing us together as a community of investigators with input from all of you to hopefully shape the discussion with the FDA and educate the FDA, but do it backed by data. So we can all agree that acuity is the wrong endpoint, but it's better if we can agree on that and then bring data to the FDA to say, we, we don't think you should focus on acuity, but look at what we learned about perimetry over the course of two years, or what, look at what we looked or learned about um, FST, a measure of light sensitivity, over the last two years. So I, I don't think I'm quite sure yet at this point where, where and how all of you can and will help with all of that, but I think it's an important voice. And, and actually, it brings up the role of patient-reported outcomes. Um, I think we all know that what we measure in an eye clinic, it's not capturing the richness of vision or the complexity of how vision affects day-to-day -day life. And that's where patient-reported outcomes and surveys um, are really important. Uh, our Michigan um, colleague, Theron Jayasundera, um, and his team there has a new questionnaire um, asking about vision in everyday life that's really targeted for people with retinal dystrophies. So compared to the current gold standard, which is just 
vision, maybe some questions in there about night vision and light sensitivity. This questionnaire is was designed with input from you know people like yourselves, and so I think um, that kind of tool and that kind of specific focus will hopefully also be helpful in discussions with the FDA. And Rachel, if I can, this is uh, Chad Jackson. Um, if I could just mention one one um, sort of event that recently happened, I think on June seventh. Um, the foundation led a meeting called the XLRP for the XLRP community um, in which uh, patients were able to come and voice their this this particular concern and actually um, representatives from the FDA were there so my suggestion that is a grassroots effort where patients voices can be heard directly to, by the FDA about um, what their concerns are with these outcomes because you know as you hear about trials that um, maybe partially work but don't meet the outcomes and then it, you know it's hard for them to progress through the entire FDA approval process. I know it must be frustrating that even some progress is being made but while the FDA is stopping it and so we need to figure out better outcomes, need to continue to hear voices and keep putting pressure on the regulators to really hear what your needs are. And I would just say that um, even those trials that fail in, in the way that we think of failing the therapy doesn't work or we can't show that the therapy works they collect really important information that helps feed that knowledge that, that develops the endpoints further so even if you feel like um, you're in if you serve as a, a participant in a clinical study you're doing such a service to not only the the community and the company who's developing the treatment but to the overarching um, group of researchers who are building those endpoints um, and again, FFB is leading that way. And in our study, uh, we're, we actually use the same microperimetry uh, map, which is unique to the Rush, or, um, the Rush 2A study that they're doing, a natural history study, um, in order to be able to compare back. And when you start to have multiple studies that use similar endpoints like that, you can really start to learn about what's relevant and what's important and what can really show something in a shorter period of time, which is what we all really want. And I'm just going to add a final thought, which is, I think a voice that, or as a, a reminder industry needs to hear from all of us is patience. A six-month readout, a one-year readout, short of something like Luxterna where you see an effect right away, which of course we want for everything, right? But it, IRDs are not, retinal dystrophies are not they're different conditions and we need to have patience and there needs to be a um, dedication on the part of companies to really wait long enough before um, coming to that final decision of did this work or not work. Right, I agree. We have a question here in the front. I had a question about the NACUITY study. It, you said it's in Australia. So it's phase one and it's only dealing with safety right now. Is that correct? Uh, no, actually it's a one-two. So we did our first phase one study um, in 2017. Um, that study was a multi-dose dose, um, ascending study. Um, and it followed patients for two weeks at mul on multiple doses, but they were all healthy volunteers. And this is a follow-on study to that, which is in actual patients, but we're still collecting the PK um, information, so we're calling it a phase one, two. 
Okay, and so you know, this is an your study is an example of preserving the cones. Is that, is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So I have a question for the, for each of you. So what other studies or investigations are being targeted for neuroprotective? Uh, purposes because I think we're also bent on wanting to find the cures. Yeah. But when I think about patients' lives and my daughter-in-law's life, you know, preserving the vision she has is an immense accomplishment. And and so I'm just curious from both of your perspectives, what do you see as the neuroprotective uh, future in terms of investigations and potential therapies? Go ahead. Um, so in addition to what Jamie talked about, um, the other neuroprotective agent that is going to be tested in continued clinical trials soon is NAC, N-acetylcysteine, mm -hmm. which is similar to the N-acetylcysteine amide that um, Nacuity is working with. NAC is very, I, I think Jamie knows the chemistry better than me, but um, the goal is the same, to reduce oxidative stress and um, protect cones. So under the direction of Peter Campacharo and Mandeep Singh from Wilmer or Johns Hopkins, um, a study of a large 400 plus placebo controlled um, randomized clinical trial for that will start in the US later this year um, or early next year. Beyond what is in clinical trials or, you know, about to be, there are still a lot of other kinds of efforts. So um, if you, I think many of you heard Dan Chung speak yesterday, probably a more optogenetics-directed talk, um, but Dan, who works for the company Sparing Vision, um, Sparing Vision is also working on a genetically delivered neuroprotective um, drug called rod-derived cone viability factor. So its name says it all, right? It's, it's trying to replace something that comes from rods that increases the survival of cones. Um, so that, you know, ho hopefully we will be talking about um, in more than just the preclinical sense before too long. Thank you. Um, this is Michelle Glaze. I have a question about clinical trial participation um, in line with the neuroprotective strategies and gene therapies in the future. So I understand that if a patient participates in a gene therapy clinical trial, that could potentially disqualify them from a future clinical trial. So my question is, if a patient participates in a neuroprotective strategy, a trial for something like Nacuity's uh, trial that's underway or the NAC trial that's upcoming, <clears throat> excuse me, could that potentially disqualify that patient from a gene therapy clinical trial should one surface later on? Yeah, so um, I don't necessarily think so. Certainly the eligibility criteria for every study are really carefully chosen based on um, what the team is, is trying to accomplish in that study. Um, but because, uh, well, and it, it may de depend on the delivery and the length of time that the treatment that you're on when you're on that 
neuroprotective study um, stays. Basically, what we the the, the traditional um, approach would be uh, to not be on another. Um, investigational product for a certain period of time before you start the next study and that you're also stable and I think those are the two probably critical things what you don't want to happen is um, confounding the information the data that we're collecting in the the second study by something that happened in the first study and that's what the researchers are, are trying to avoid um, but in this case the case that you describe it's unlikely probably that that would be the case and so I, I don't anticipate Although, again, every study is, is designed specifically and, and by people who might have different perspectives than mine, I wouldn't anticipate that that would um, prevent you from, from doing a future study in gene therapy. I agree. Um, you know, the, the reason for thinking about these things is when you enroll somebody in a clinical trial and give them an investigational therapy, you want to make sure that there is um, nothing extra, nothing unknown that has already modified the course of their RP or whatever the disease is. Um, with neuroprotective drugs, at least the oral ones, not, not things like rod-derived cone viability factor, but the oral ones, their effect is, is not permanent, right? So um, as I think about eligibility trial that criteria that I've looked at for gene therapy trials, um, there's often a, a little sentence about if you've taken some investigational therapy, you have to wait five half-lives, half-lives being um, a measure of how long it takes to clear your system before enrolling in a trial. And that, that usually ends up being a period of about six months. So I, I actually think it is an advantage. So Michelle, thanks for asking that question. I think it's an advantage of neuroprotective, at least oral therapies, um, trials of oral therapies that um, you don't, um, among all the risks of being in a clinical trial, you're not risking your ability, you're probably not risking your ability to be in a, a subsequent trial later on of something different. We have plenty of time for questions, so please keep them coming. Um, I'll ask a question um, while we wait. Um, so since the approval of Luxterna, um, it, it would seem that maybe we could just create like a factory to produce gene therapies for retinal indication. Can you please give us maybe a little insight like why that's not the case where we can't just sort of plug and play every single sort of um, variant into that platform and just pump out therapies very quickly? Oh, plug and play is the dream. <laughs> um, I think Luxterna was so, so important as the first disease the first retinal dystrophy to um, reach the, the stage of going to the FDA for approval because it showed clear-cut, you know, unequivocal improvement. Part of that was because looks, um, RPE65-related retinal dystrophies, they're just different from, um, from RP. There's a lot of structure left, even if that structure doesn't work as well. And by structure, I mean photoreceptors, retinal pigment epithelium. So it's kind of a different starting point than something like RP, where, as, as you probably all know from clinic visits and from your, even more importantly, your experience of your vision, um, those central islands often work very well for a long time. It makes it a little bit harder to get to get a readout, um, like with Luxterna. But to, to Chad's question, I hope that um, we are in for a, a faster 
process. As we have more RP therapies progress to phase three trials, whether it's gene replacement, whether it's antisense oligonucleotides, I hope that effort and that work will give us a better sense of what are the outcomes we should be focusing on. I think that is a big part of the challenge because the tools are very similar, disease to disease, whether you're using gene replacement or um, antisense oligos. The safety we all have a good handle on um, in terms of how to, to make it safe and how to protect um, all the participants. So, you know, give us a few years and, and maybe it will be a faster translation. My name's Violet Labity and I'm from Traverse City, Michigan. And I have a question, it's a little off base from what we're talking about with the clinical trials, but something that I'm suffering with. What kind of research are they doing on the Charles Bonnet syndrome? So um, Charles Bonnet syndrome, for anyone who is not familiar with it, it's, it's something that's not unique to retinitis pigmentosa. Um, it's you know, named after Charles Bonnet. Um, and it's the phenomenon of having formed visual hallucinations um, that the individual experiencing them knows aren't real. And so by formed visual hallucinations, I mean um, seeing objects that aren't there or seeing patterns that aren't there. This is not something that is unique to RP. It's a phenomenon or syndrome that's shared among people with vision loss for all kinds of examples. And I remember encountering, or all kinds of reasons. I remember encountering it for the first time as a medical student on a stroke service um, where the patient I was seeing told me I had a little bird sitting on my shoulder and a number seven on my forehead. And of course she knew there wasn't a seven on my forehead and a bird on my shoulder. Um, but, you know, she saw them, and people with macular degeneration experience this, so it's, it's, a, um, it's not an uncommon problem. It can be very, uh, even if the person experiencing it knows it's not real, it can be very disturbing and intrusive and distracting. Um, and to give you a sense of why we think this happens, we, we think the brain is trying to um, compensate and fill in any any gaps in what it thinks it should be receiving in terms of information. As far as research to um, mitigate it or, or block it, uh, I think we're identifying an unmet need here, um, a, a need that goes beyond this room. I'm not personally aware of anything right now. I don't know, Chad or Jamie, if you know of anything. Yeah, so the comment for anyone who couldn't hear it was that um, she was very blown away when it happened to her. Um, and so it, it is something that um, definitely needs ophthalmologist and optometrist awareness and, and hopefully a little bit more than that um, in the years ahead in terms of ways to kind of dial it down and make it stop. I think we have a question over to our panels left. So um, I've just been curious, and this may not be part of what, what you might know, but you, you might. How many people are estimated to have RP of any variant in the United States or even across the world? 
So the numbers, the numbers vary, and the estimates vary, and I think it has to do with the difficulty of counting and collecting this kind of data. But um, I've seen anything from one in 1,000 to one in 3,000. I think probably one in 2,000 is um, not just because it's in the middle, but I think that's, that's probably a pretty good uh, guesstimate. Question in the front. Um, with the recent uh, coronavirus issue that uh, plagued the whole world, uh, we went from uh, identifying a virus to um, a virus being uh, put out to the to the world to the community probably within 10 months, including clinical trials, um, realizing that FDA was hyper-focused on something like this. Um, is that and will that have any effect on um, transparency and speed of getting drugs through the, um, through the system for possibly for a, um, something with, to do with RP or retinal-related disease? Um, so I guess what I would say is that we're talking about something a little bit different. Um, it's very encouraging to see that when um, everyone is focused on something, you can speed things through the process because there certainly is a lot of administrative burden through that process. Um, but because RP is slowly progressive, it's very difficult to show changes unless you show changes over time. And I think that's probably the biggest challenge that we face at the moment. Um, certainly there are also um, paths to do quick reviews with FDA and um, because um, it's a rare disease that helps us out um, through that pathway. But I think that, um, you know, the, 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 the slow progression, while it's a very good thing for patients who are looking at losing their sight over time, um, it's, it's tough to show a change in, in clinic, and that's probably going to be the rate-limiting factor for us in, in bringing a, a new treatment to, um, to approval. I think part of your question was also was, was speed, but also transparency. And mm. so maybe, um, you know, as we all see headlines, the FDA will deliberate tomorrow on, you know, whatever review of whatever vaccine for whatever age. That is really bringing its process out into the open, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that, um, I don't think we'll see headlines for RP, unfortunately, you know, that smaller group of us focused on it. Um, but that type of openness hopefully will continue. Agreed. Hi, my name is Jackie. I'm from Connecticut. What's the best way to look at your clinicaltrials.gov as far as like timeline? I mean, there's stuff there that I see there for years and still phase one, two. Um, and, and with that said, um, what is something that we should be following? Um, I know we talked a little bit, CRISPR and, and other things like that. Um, anything you can share that's later um, outside of your efficacy, patient safety, um, that's further along, um, 
with my, my diseases being studied and well, gene therapies being studied by Harama. It doesn't look like it in, in, out of France, so when you look at something that's maybe out of the country, it kind of it sits in the, in the same thing. There's no report out, so what's the best way to just understand where something is, follow it along, get the reporting that might be put out, or is that just normal to see when something's in clinical trial, you don't see a whole lot of information um, being displayed out to the public? Either way. Um, you have identified, I think Jamie and I will both have some things to say about this. Um, clinicaltrials.gov is a really messy place, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, you'll see things that were posted for the first time a few years ago and maybe updated a year after that, maybe not. You'll see some trials will have very detailed information about eligibility, about endpoints, about dose. Others will have mm, very little. Um, so I actually, when I'm seeing patients, um, I actually point them to FFB and the newsletters and the lists of clinical trials that I think Ben Shaberman is responsible for keeping up to date on the website. That's a different kind of information than you're asking for, um, but it's, you know, it's not specific to a trial, but it's just understanding the landscape and what, what is current versus something that might have been going on a decade ago. With regard to um, you know, your question about the Harama trial, which is PDE6B, um, retinitis pigmentosa, it, it is challenging to know what's going on in early phase clinical trials. Um, often those trials are very small. They are, in the gene therapy world, they are universally almost very small. Um, and unless the data is either presented at a meeting or published in a manuscript in the scientific literature, um, many of us, me included, are in the dark. Sometimes, though, um, companies will have uh, like presentations on their websites um, that they give to investors, and I've actually used that um, as a way to get information about trials that I'm not participating in, but just wondering what the current status is. So that's, that's one thing to try for that one in particular. Yeah, and I will say um, I agree with everything that you said, and clinicaltrials.gov um, has some very good information on it, but it's very hard to distinguish what's ongoing from what may have just fallen off or you know what's been updated recently or not. Um, so in addition to that, I would say I get probably at least once a day an email from a patient or a patient caregiver personally to me at Nacuity asking about our trial. So if you are aware of a trial that you're interested in learning about where they are, I respond to them all the time. And I keep an ongoing spreadsheet um, of all of the people who've asked questions. And when we have data and information to share, I use that um, to blast out information to them. I don't know that every company does that, but um, I would be surprised if you reached out, if you wouldn't get a response and, and get some information, if there were some information to share. You have a question in front? Uh, yeah, I, I'm gonna go back a little to the lady that said that she sees things, she has something different than me. I have RP and I've had it, I uh, was diagnosed at least six years ago. And mine's been very slow progressing, but oh, in the last few years, it's, it's got worse. But the last few months, some weird things have happened to my eyes uh, just a few times. I like it because in the middle of the night, sometimes I will wake up when it's dark and I can see perfectly. I'll even sit up in bed and I will see people 
and I see colors and everything. And it's really nice, but then as soon as I blink my eyes, it's gone. But this is done, oh, it's happened about four times now. But now when this happens, I try not to blink. <laughs> because it is so nice to be able to see. I, you know, I see people that, uh, oh, one time my daughter was waving at me, and I don't know if I'm just dreaming, you know, or something's happening to my eyes. I'm, I'm not sure I have a precise medical explanation for that, but I agree it sounds really Maybe it's really just, nice. Yeah, maybe it's just in my head. Well, I, I, um, I, vision is more than just the eyes, right? It is more well, than just the eyes. That, that's what I keep thinking. I think yeah. maybe it's a miracle. <laughs> but, you know, it's really nice to be able to see colors and clearly. And, but it's just happened a few times in the last few months. So the, the comment for anyone on this side of the room who couldn't hear it from the, um, the woman who had Charles Bonnet was the, the vibrancy of the colors that she sees um, and kind of the beauty of it. You have a question in the back? Yeah, my question is about the coordination, international coordination of all these studies and different phases of the trials. Um, I'm just trying to figure out how to, it, it gets optimized and coordinated. Is it academia? Is it industry? Um, you know, the timing. Um, I, I guess you go to the path of least resistance to get started. Maybe that's in Australia or wherever, but is there a international body that manages all these, or is it just sort of loosely defined academic sort of relationships or is it funding? I'm just trying to figure out how, how the schedule is determined and how priorities are set yeah. for all these different initiatives. Yeah, it's a really important and good question. And um, the answer is all of those things play a role in the decisions that are made. Um, of course, cost is, an effect, is, an, is a factor, but um, often speed to the clinic is the, the top factor. And um, there isn't one overarching regulatory body who oversees everyone, although there are, you know, like ISO and um, ANSI and some other groups who, who help define the regulatory landscape. Um, so even in every country sometimes, there's a different regulatory body that you, that you interact with. And they all have their nuances. They're very similar to deal with at this point, I feel like, but there are nuances. And I'll give you an example. Um, in Australia, they have the equivalent of FDA, which is their TGA. Um, in the US, in order to start our phase one, two clinical trial, we go through an IND, and, and, uh, an IND process. They review our protocol at the FDA, they agree with it, and then we get ethics approval or inter, um, IRB approval 
for every site and for the study itself. And that takes a lot of time. In Australia, the TGA doesn't have to review our study at that point. Um, so we can go straight to ethics. And as long as the ethics committees um, approve it for each clinical site, as well as for the study overall, we can start our study. And that was a much smoother and quicker process for us to get into the clinic. Um, there are pros and cons to every approach. And um, like I said, uh, there's, there's a limited population, frankly, in Australia. Not every study can be done there. Um, particularly for the more rare diseases, there's just no way you would have enough patients to recruit and have a full study. That's another piece of it. Where is the population that you're wanting to study um, and wanting to enroll in the, in the, as participants? Um, but to get into the clinic quickly is often the driving factor, at least it was for us. Um, and we're hoping, like I said before, to move into the clinic in the U.S. Um, shortly, but it, it is just a longer process. And at the moment, there's no overarching you know, body that helps coordinate all of that. So as a company, you just have to make decisions based on what data you have and, and the path that makes sense for you. I think another, another piece of, of that is where um, when companies for gene therapy studies are getting started again with this, this small group of patients, they want to know that they can work with centers that have those patients and have the experience to kind of execute quickly um, as part of that, that drive to getting into the clinic or getting to the next step soon. And so that means that sometimes companies will really focus their early efforts at one or two academic sites. And I, I think your question was also about funding, right? Or, or who, who's, who is starting these? And the, the costs, especially for gene therapy trials, are so high um, that even if the, the drug that is being developed was born at a university, it's probably been licensed to a company, to do all of the um, necessary preclinical work to test safety, to look at toxicology, all those very expensive, laborious steps um, to go to the FDA, get your IND, your investigational new drug application approved. The company will, again, will then um, try to work with, with academic sites that it knows can help uh, move efficiently and effectively. Um, and so that may be in a phase one, two trial, just one or two sites. And other phase one, two trials that we're involved in, um, there are international sites. So we were in a trial with AGTC where one of the highest enrolling sites is actually in Israel. Um, so geography in and of itself isn't really determining or determinant. It's, it's often who has the patience, who has the interest um, and the ability to, to move things forward quickly. Uh, is it okay to offer a theory for, I'm a clinical psychologist, uh, my name is Anne, for the woman who's been waking up and being able to see until she blinks, is it okay to offer a theory? Offer a theory. I'm not hearing, hearing, okay. Um, so there's a phenomenon called hypnopompic or hypnagogic hallucinations, and the hypnopompic occur right before bedtime for some people. Um, where they're kind of drifting into almost like a REM state, rapid eye movement is dreaming phase, even while they're still awake, and so they may have a hallucination there. But the hypnagogic 
are when people wake up in the morning and part of that REM dreaming function is carrying over into full alertness. So basically I would describe that to patients as, boy, your wake system is being really, really efficient um, and it's happening so fast, it's, you're still in partial REM. Um, so I think that it's just a theory of what might be happening, but if we've had vision, we still often dream in full sight. In my dreams, I have full sight. Um, so that might be happening. And also as we age, we tend to have lighter sleep stages. Uh, we wake up more often as we age than when we were younger. And if we were to graph the sleep stages from left to right with a line being above it, you're awake, and below it's all the sleep stages, the REM sleep, the dreaming phases, and we have several throughout the night, come right up below that line. We are so close to full awakefulness uh, when we're dreaming. And most people have a brief awakening. We don't remember, though, because then we dip right back into deep sleep. But if you're having a distressing dream, you remember it, that you woke up. But as we age, we're having more of those little disruptive waking up more. So um, I think you might be having a hypnagogic hallucination, but you're enjoying it, and that's awesome. And um, I love how you said, I'm going to try not to blink, so. <laughs> Thank you. So I've got, I have a question about a specific trial. Um, I'd heard a couple of months back that the, uh, the Reneuron trial, that I, part of which I think was being administered up there at MEI, uh, had been halted or suspended. But I don't think I ever heard the specific reason. We'd heard good things out of the Reneuron trial initially with, I think, some participants actually reading considerably better on the eye, eye chart. Uh, but then suddenly I'd heard it was suspended. But I don't think I ever got the full explanation. Would, would either of you or anyone know exactly what happened there with that particular trial? So that, um, for anyone who's not aware of that trial, um, that was a study um, stem cell trial using human retinal progenitor stem cells. So these progenitor stem cells weren't yet rods or cones, but they were almost all the way there. And it was based on lab work by Dr. Michael Young at Scapins and MassIonier. The trial um, you know, was based on delivering subretinal injections of small volumes of these stem cells during a vitrectomy surgery. And as the trial progressed, um, the number of progenitor stem cells in that volume increased. And um, also as the trial progressed, there was an effort to um, deliver those stem cells to the operating room site or the institution in a way that um, had a little bit more flex in terms of time so that they didn't have to be rushed on a plane from wherever they were being kept in a lab to the OR with a six hour window of viability. Um, so the formulation of the stem cell product changed over time. I have to say that I, I um, am not directly involved in the trial much these days. And so I think um, some of the precise reasons, reasons why it was halted um, haven't been shared with me. I think probably it had to do with safety. That would be my guess as um, as the number of stem cells increased and the product changed a little bit. That's not, that's not factual information from the company, that's kind of my assumption. Um, I think it, 
it's uh, been an important th uh, trial for a number of reasons um, beyond any impact it might have had for people who participated in it. Um, it showed us that we could put stem cells into an eye and not have to necessarily clobber people, and I use that word intentionally, with really hard-driving immunosuppression or steroids. That may not be the case for every type of stem cell product, um, but it was the case here. So it's, it's along the lines of what Jamie said, we learn from every trial. This was something we learned from this trial. And I'm sorry, I can't provide more specific information to your question. Our questions are getting a little bit more broad and far ranging as the session goes, and that's wonderful, so. All right, we have a question here in the back in the middle. Thank you. Um, my name is Becky, and I have an autosomal dominant RP, and my gene was identified uh, SNRMP200. And uh, so because it was identified, then, you know, we, I had my children uh, both tested. It's my understanding they were tested for that specific gene, and uh, luckily they did not have that particular gene. But my question to you is, is it possible that there's another gene out there that perhaps unknown that could also be associated with my particular RP, and that maybe this could, maybe 10 years down the road or five years down the road, uh, a symptom could appear and they could actually still be, have RP. Do you mind if I ask what, what type of genetic testing you did? Whether, I mean, was it kind of a big panel of all the RP genes? So that's a really good question. I, I don't know. I went through the Retina Foundation of the Southwest in okay. Dallas, and I, my, my sample has been in the databank for years, I mean, like probably 40 years. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm going to kind of conjecture, knowing, knowing you're in great hands down there in Dallas, um, that they tested your sample for all the known RP-causing genes. And for any of us to attribute somebody's RP to a specific genetic variation, we have to look at that variation and grade it relative to what the American College of Medical Geneticists, um, their criteria to say, is this the kind of variant that we all have, you know, thousands of in our genome that's in inconsequential? Or is this something that we have multiple types of evidence to tell us could be disease-causing? Um, so I would, you know, it's, it's a good question for the Retina Foundation of the Southwest to ask them a little bit more about the testing you had. But if they told you that this was the cause of your RP, I would feel confident that it was. And I, I contrast that to, um, situations where genetic reports come back with not pathogenic variants or likely pathogenic variants, but something called variants of uncertain significance. Those are variants where we can't tell at this moment in time if they're irrelevant or if they're maybe causing somebody's RP. That's a different scenario, but um, I, would, I would anticipate in your case the SNRP200, based on what you've told me, is, is what um, is causing your RP. And that, does change how you see things for your kids. And we still have about 30 minutes left in the session, so please keep your questions coming. And if there uh, are, you know, we uh, knowing that there was, um, I'll speak for me and Jamie here, knowing that there were some really, really good kind of therapy-based sessions yesterday, we didn't want to start by telling you all that again. But if there are 
particular topics that you want more than a few minutes on, um, we're happy to speak to those as well. Hi, thank you, thank you. Uh, early on in your, in your comments, you mentioned that there were kind of a three-pronged approach to interventions. You know, one was the neuroprotective things we've talked about. The other was the altering the DNA, the CRISPR-type um, technology. And then you mentioned the restoring light, um, light sensitivity to the retina. Could you speak to a little bit about what you, you know about that and what you see in the pipeline in terms of potential therapies for that that last yes for the light restoring light sensitivity yeah. and and you know I I know that there's been some work done on trying to stimulate other 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 parts of the cell other than you know where we think the light is is coming sure um, so I'm going to answer that question by backing up a little bit a lot of our fields focus is on gene-specific therapies, right? Um, we don't have enough of them right now. We need more of them, and we heard from, we've already discussed that it's, it's not a fast enough process. The other limitation to gene-specific therapies is you need enough of a target. You need to have enough rods or cones um, that the gene therapy has something to intervene on and help. When, when there is not enough of a risk-benefit sort of advantage there in terms of there not being enough, enough of a target um, for a gene therapy, that's where we think about um, rebuilding light sensitivity to the retina. We talked a little bit about stem cells with the Reneuron trial. Um, stem cell efforts have moved on um, as technology has moved on, or they've, they've taken a slightly new turn, which is, Recognizing that the retina is this really complex electrical circuit where um, everything is arranged just so in terms of what cells are wired or connected to what. And so if we think about audaciously, how do we want to rebuild that circuit? It's not, it's not by just putting in some stem cells and hoping they find the correct orientation. Maybe that would work, but if we we're going to help the system a little bit more. It's by building um, very precise arrays of, of either progenitor cells or already differentiated stem cells. So I've seen some um, beautiful work presented in the last year at meetings about individuals and companies working on that. Um, often using a nano, uh, this, is, this is all at a nano level, but using a, a nanoscale um, degradable, often scaffold, that one of my mentors in um, training, Dr. Ed Stone, when he was talking about this idea, he talked about it as an egg crate. Imagine the grocery store egg crate you get that holds your dozen eggs, but imagine that at a microscopic level, with each opening just gently holding a rod or cone in the correct orientation. And so there's many groups working on this now, printing those egg crates with 3D nanoprinters, um, so you really have a sheet of photoreceptors that hopefully you could very gently unroll underneath the retina during a surgery. There are also groups working not just on the photoreceptors, but supplying the very important supportive cell layer, the retinal pigment epithelium, along with them. So having a multi-laminar stem cell-based structure to um, introduce to the eye. 
There's been great work on this at, um, at Hopkins. I think they've actually treated one or two people, and it's, it's been people with dry age-related macular degeneration, but when we think about stem cells, that's, that's where um, we get a little bit more crosstalk across diseases, which is good. So even, even though this, is, um, this particular trial was for AMD, it could have impacts outside of AMD. So stem cells are slow work. I, I've been very excited about what I've seen recently. But you also mentioned something um, that I think you were alluding to, optogenetics. Optogenetics um, has genetics in its name, but it's, it's genetics in a different way. It's the idea of delivering a intrinsically light-sensitive protein to cells that are not light-sensitive. So coming back to the retina as a very complex multi-layer structure, when light enters the eyes, it strikes, it hits the rods and cones, it creates that spark of electricity. That spark of electricity then goes through other layers of neurons before leaving the eye and the optic nerve. So if, if any of you have been in you know, your ophthalmologist's office and seen a cross-section picture of the retina called an OCT um, on the screen, uh, even in advanced RP where some of the, the light-sensitive layers are thinner and harder to see, often there's a, a very nice, beautiful sandwich of other layers sitting on top. And so with optogenetics, the goal is to make some of those other layers light sensitive. That has some advantages, um, like stem cells do. It, it allows you to capitalize on all the parts of the retinal circuitry that aren't affected by RP. Things like contrast and direction, um, other aspects of visual processing that happen in the retina. And so you, you maintain that processing before information leads the eye. In the realm of optogenetics, there's a few companies out there. Um, and I think in maybe March of this year, uh, we started to hear encouraging news from one of them, from Gensite. Um, if, if any of this rings bells for any of you, there was an individual in France who was treated with their optogenetic therapy, who after a period of time, and, and there was a video to show this, Using the, the treated eye, he could identify a darkly um, colored item on a white table, whereas with the untreated eye, he couldn't find it. So this was a really important proof of concept, first step. Even in optogenetics, there's different strategies to take. So Gensite is targeting its light sensitivity imbuing proteins to the retinal ganglion cells. They, they eventually make up the optic nerve that goes to the brain. Um, there is some work in preclinical trials or preclinical level at this point to try to make use of the cones that are not gone but potentially dormant. So can you target new light sensitive proteins to existing cones to kind of reactivate them? Um, that I don't think has hit the clinic yet. So there's, there's a number of companies out there um, working in, in this area. Jamie, while well, there's a microphone, did you have anything to add to no, that? It's a, you did a beautiful job okay. describing it. Um, so one thing I'm kind of wondering about this kind of all this discussion kind of uh, uh, ping, pinged my memory a little bit about something. And, and you had started, I think early on, you talked uh, or, or at least uh, mentioned mRNA and RNA. And if I remember right, about a year ago, um, 
uh, Shannon Boy, I think, gave us a presentation or a, uh, on a webinar about some work she's doing up at UF, I think, with mRNA and, and our RNA. It kind of sticks in my mind because it was about the same time that uh, Pfizer and Moderna came out with their uh, mRNA vaccines. Mm -hmm. um, so if I've got it right, that, that was an approach she was talking about, but it's kind of all escaped my memory now. I wonder if you know anything about that, and I'm sure if she were here that Dr. Boy would give us a very interesting pitch on it, but <laughs> can you elaborate at all on, on what they're doing, things they're doing with mRNA and RNA? Yeah, so I... I um I don't know if, you know, Dr. Boyce does some really amazing work. I don't know if this is part of her portfolio, but maybe I can use it as an opportunity just to distinguish among some of the genetic therapies um, and touching on RNA as um, a potential solution when, when other therapies aren't quite right. So using Luxterna as an example, Luxterna uses a modified viral ve vector, um, adeno-associated virus, as the delivery truck to bring a full-length copy of the RPE65 gene to the retina. It's really good, AAV, the virus is really good at doing that, and um, because of safeties, the safety and efficacy of Luxterna, that is the model that has been used for many other gene therapies. Um, so for example, all the X-linked retinitis pigmentosa Subretinal work done by AGTC, by Nightstar Biogen, and by Mira has all utilized that system. That system doesn't work for everything, though. Um, the AAV virus has a limited cargo space. You know, think about it as a small pickup truck rather than a, an 18 wheeler. And it, its cargo space becomes a real issue. There's a lot of genes that are just too big to put into the AAV. So USH2A is like that, EYS is like that, there's a long list. I'm gonna give Dr. Dr. Boy a shout out here because one of the really good things her group is working on is figuring out how to divide genes across two AAVs and then you put the two AAVs into the cell and the, you get a whole gene again. Um, but we'll come, back, we'll come back to that problem, okay? So one, one way that AAV gene therapy fails is if genes are too big. Another way it fails is if putting in a correctly spelled copy of the gene isn't the answer to treating the disease. So there are types of RP, with rhodopsin RP as an example, um, probably RP1 RP is an example too, where the misspelled gene makes a protein, and that, that abnormal protein has a toxic or harmful effect to the cells. And so you think about that scenario, and you think about putting in a correctly spelled gene and more protein, that is not going to necessarily undo or water down the effect of the damaging protein. So we have these two scenarios, large gene, damaging mutation, that AAV gene replacement therapy can't help with. That's where we look to RNA therapies and also to genome editing um, as potential answers. Let's talk about um, RNA therapies first since that, that was the, the question for my long-winded explanation. Um, for RNA therapies, we go back to thinking about what like Crick and Watson called the central dogma. The DNA is the blueprint for everything in our bodies and DNA eventually needs to be made into protein. But there's an intermediate step, the RNA, and specifically the messenger RNA. So even as we have been focusing a lot on targeting things at a DNA level, there's this intermediate step of RNA before we get to protein. Antisense oligonucleotides are one way of targeting messenger RNA. 
In contrast to gene replacement therapy, where you put this huge, huge gene into your virus, these antisense oligos, as I'll kind of sh shorthand them, they are tiny. They are usually like 21 individual nucleic acids in a row, nucleic acids being um, what makes up a gene. So they are microscopic. But what they do is they specifically bind to RNA. Um, and you can use them to snip out part of a gene. Um, so for using USH2A as an example, um, ProQR, as many of you know, has a olig antisense oligotherapy for USH2A RP. And the way that drug works is by kind of helping to snip out the misspelled part of the USH2A gene. You don't need that part to make a protein that works. And so um, the, the antisense will hopefully bind to all the relevant RNA in the cell that's there at that moment in time. And you get some healthy protein and um, you know, help the retina in that way. You can use that same kind of approach to hopefully turn off genes. Um, ProQR was trying that with um, RP due to the P23His mutation in rhodopsin. So you can turn off, you can make a, a gene that's too big for a virus, something that's amenable to therapy with an antisense oligonucleotide. These are also delivered in a different way than drugs like Luxterna. Instead of being injected into the underneath the retina during an operating room surgery called a vitrectomy, um, these antisense oligos can be injected into the vitreous cavity of the eye in a clinic room. So when I was in clinic in my macular degeneration clinic on Thursday, I did probably dozens of these kinds of injections in my clinic procedure room for people with wet macular degeneration. So as we think about treating many people and in a way that is safe and, and um, hopefully with low burden, that's an attractive way to do it. These drugs also have the advantage of having um, reach to a broader area of the retina. So a, a gene therapy like Luxterna that's delivered during a surgery really can only access part of the retina. If you think about the retina as being like a very sort of high-walled bowl, a gene therapy like Luxterna is only going to access the base of the bowl. If we're seeing people with earlier RP, certainly, or children, I mean, I'm, I'm greedy, right? I want to get my therapy to all of the retina. And the antisense oligos have the ability to circulate in the eye and hopefully um, reach more of the retina. I mentioned genome editing because genome editing has the same kind of applications as antisense oligos. Um, for a gene that is amenable to being fit into an AAV vector, gene replacement would still kind of be my preference. But for a gene that is too big, or a gene where you really need to turn it off to have a therapeutic approach, that's where genome editing um, it plays a role. And the, the, the parts of genome editing are really delivered in a similar way to a gene replacement drug like Luxterna, where a virus carries all of the editing equipment into the retina um, and is delivered into the rods and cones or the, photo, or the RPE um, to actually go into the DNA and just uh, you know, make a few corrections here and there. Um, but like, like, uh, subretinal gene, like gene replacement, it's delivered subretinally. Um, and so it's a one-time treatment, requires a surgery. The antisense oligos, I didn't stress this, um, but because they are targeting RNA, 
not DNA. There's something that would have to be given repeatedly through a lifetime. That was, that was long-winded. I hope I got to the, the meat of what you were asking about. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I, I had a question going back to optogenetics, and this is really a your perspective type of question. My understanding is that optogenetics is for uh, patients with advanced disease. And I'm wondering, as those trials progress and as pro progression is made and success follows, hopefully, are there implications for utilizing an optogenetic strategy for people with less advanced disease? For example, for someone like myself, could optogenetics um, be an additional uh, neuroprotective type of strategy to help replace or back up the photoreceptors that are being lost during the course of my vision loss. Secondly, I'd also like any information you might have about progression of the J-site trial. So mm. two pieces, thank you. Okay, let's, um, let's do J-site first. So J-site, uh, for people who aren't familiar with us, this was a, um, a company based in California and they were doing a stem cell trial, but it was stem cells in a different way than we've talked about so far today. It was not using stem cells to rebuild the retina and um, restore light sensitivity or you know, make new photoreceptors, but it was using stem cells as a neurotrophic or neuroprotective source. So they were injecting um, a small volume of stem cells into the vitreous of the eye, so it would be just kind of a little uh, blob, for lack of a better scientific word, in the, in the jelly of the eye, um, that would hopefully have some kind of protective effect. And, and we don't know exactly what that effect was, but we know that stem cells can be sources of what we call neurotrophic, um, neurotrophic factors. So JSITE had some, um, had reported some encouraging things about individuals with improved vision in a, I think a phase two trial. Um, I haven't seen the actual data yet. I went actually looking for it recently um, out of curiosity. And so I, I hope there is a manuscript or something in the works. So I don't, that's a long winded, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where things are at right now. Um, but if we go back to optogenetics, I think you touched on something that I want to stress, which is right now we're all kind of focused on therapies in different categories, right? It's this or it's that. But if you think about how we treat cancer, you know, we don't treat cancer with one drug um, or one kind of treatment. You know, somebody might get radiation and then chemo, or they might get a chemo regimen that has multiple drugs in it. And I think I'm, I'm um, unabashedly uh, stealing from Mark Panisi here, who I, I heard use the cancer analogy a few years ago, but that's, I think that's something we all hope for, right? A, an era where we can use multiple treatments um, synergistically for one person. So coming back to optogenetics, there's, there's a few, I think, points there. Um, one is that we don't know yet its, it's full capability. And the full capability may be different depending on whether um, the optogenetics drug is targeted to those dormant cones versus um, later, later layers of the retina. 
So I think, I think the next few years may help us answer your question. Um, and uh, I, just too early to say. But I, I think when we think about optogenetics targeted towards dormant cones, um, there we also ask the question not just of how much will that help vision, but will it help keep those dormant cones alive? or do we need a secondary kind of neuroprotection to keep those cells alive and manifesting whatever effect the optogenetics protein has? And I, I guess when I think about optogenetics, I also think about what we've learned from retinal prosthetics. Um, so the Argus second site being an example where um, you know, this was the first eye chip that was approved by the FDA. It's no longer available. Um, some individuals with it felt like it helped them, others didn't. But the chips since then have all gone on to, that are being developed, have more electrodes, better resolution. And so I think about optogenetics the same way, in that is whatever is being delivered to the retina, will it bring, you know, what kind of pixel resolution will it bring? And I think we just, we don't know yet. We have um, about approximately nine minutes left in the session. Um, if you have another question, please um, please continue to ask. Thank you. You know, I, I love all the all the information that you've departed. It's been very very rich, and thank you for communicating it in a way that all of us non molecular biologists can understand. <laughs> um, my question is, you know, we're talking about treatments and potential cures. How much emphasis is there being placed on research in terms of etiology, like? Why do those rods and cones die in the first place? Yeah, I mean, th there's a ton of research, especially in academia, that looks at that. Um, and it's a really important question. Um, sometimes it leads to a treatment. Sometimes we can find treatments without really fully understanding the underlying etiology. Um, and we try to do both, I think, because we're aimed at getting treatment as quickly as we can. Um, I don't know. If I, I think there's actually, it's, it's such an important area to understand um, because we can identify what part of a rod or cone a gene is responsible for. We may or may not understand what it actually does there. Um, and then why, why all these mutations kind of um, or why all these genes, if they're misspelled, end in this common pathway of degeneration. The pathways of that aren't understood as well. So there is a lot of effort on that, as there should be, because as Jamie said, you know, we can sometimes get to a therapy without understanding that in between. Um, but if something doesn't, if a therapy doesn't work the way we want it to, especially in clinic, well, if we had understood the pathways better, would we have had a better chance of success? So I think, um, you know, there's a little soapbox for me, but it, it really gets to the importance of all of the labs doing basic science, fundamental basic science biology, and the importance of funding those labs. And as I was looking through, actually, the, um, the, one of the, the booklets we all got in our welcome bag, I mean, the F FFB is clearly doing that, right? 
and we need NEI to continue doing that and, and just supporting those people who are still working on helping us understand the fundamentals. And if I could just add, I mean, I think that the basic research infrastructure in the in the U.S. and in Europe and really across the world is is making a lot of effort to understand those basic biological um, things that really make up disease. But one thing that I think is encouraging is that um, retinal organoids seem to be becoming very robust, where you actually can take cells from actual patients and derive a retina-like <laughs> structure in a dish. So it has all the sort of biology of that patient and then study it in a, in a dish. So it's really, um, it's still progressing. It's not sort of fully on board to where the structure and function um, completely recapitulate what you see in a human, but um, things are progressing in that area. So I think that hopefully in the future, we'll be able to have more of those um, sort of culture type situations where we really can understand um, patients. Um, do we have another question? No, it's okay. We have one over here to the right of the panel. Yes, um, Stacy Rhodes. I'm from Mississippi. My boys have uh, XLRP. They're 26 and 20. Uh, their gene, RPGR, um, is the problem. And I'm a veterinarian, so as soon as I found out in 2013, the doctors in Mississippi missed it. I went to Emory, then we went to Dr. Stone. We did the genetic testing, and back in the day when Carver did it, and it took, I guess, 14 months, uh, they looked in my eyes and said, you have it too. I never received my genetic testing. I guess my whole question is the logistics for the newer people of this disease that I have forgotten more than I can even remember. I've talked to Houseworth, Jacobson, uh, Beltran lately. I, I learned all the different modalities, but now I've like even forgotten them trying to help my sons navigate life. Um, so... I guess my question is the logistics. I don't have my genetic testing. I have theirs written out. It is very hard in the medical field for me to get the reports from my boys so I can even talk about it because it is theirs and they are busy to get their medical records so I can even speak intelligently to you guys. I can't tie that together. I called Beltran. I said, I'll quit my work and I'll come clean up the dogs. I think he's the only one that has the Briard that has retained vision for so many years, a very, very good treatment. I've tried to help my boys find trials, uh, acetylcysteine. I'm, I've just been everywhere and I'm lost. Um, and so I can't imagine the rest of the group. Um, I guess I need to start over and it was hard to get my genetic tests and I don't have them. They did get my stem cells. I love Dr. Stone. I love everybody has been wonderful. France, there's been so many people that I've met and the researchers have been great. Steven, I can't even remember them all, and I tried to memorize everything new coming out. Do you, do you offer anything for all of us, like, where can I go repeat my genetic test, get results quickly, and keep all the results together from my sons? How can I do that so I can speak, so I, think so I can ask for the correct research they need? Thank you for being here and, and sharing um, the frustrations and challenges that you've been through in this process, and I, I hope some of those are getting easier And for people who are newer at it. Um, the availability, first of all, technology, like the technolo technologic advances in genetic sequencing have, you know, made that 14-month that wait, which, you know, was kind of on the shorter end sometimes <laughs> a long time ago, has made that 14 months now like two months, right? And 
Um, I think we have all gotten better at uh, sending very clear-cut genetic testing reports, recognizing that as information that people need to have in their medical file, their own medical file, just like they need their immunization record. So I think that piece of things for people who are newer to the process is getting better. Um, with genetic testing being more accessible, um, it would be fairly straightforward for you or your sons if you wanted to repeat it, although you know, I think we would all believe, of course, what Carver Lab did, um, but it's, you could go to any retina specialist participating in the My Retina Tracker program. Um, if, I think you'd have good options at Emory, um, anywhere your son was living, sons were living, um, to repeat that. Hearing that they have um, RPGR variants, you know, something of course to make sure is on your radar and theirs are the, the um, upcoming and active phase two, phase three clinical trials for X-linked RP due to RPGR variants. You know, whether or not they would be eligible or even interested in participating, um, you know, this is something to have on your radar to, to see what's happening with these trials. And I think that that is myself for um, genetic testing to many of my patients, which is, you know, it's, it's forward-looking information to have your own genetic result. It um, helps, helps identify a group of people that you are, you are like, right? It's the basis for our natural history studies. But it also, it's, it's kind of a roadmap to um, kind of guide your attention down the road as well. I would recommend once you get those results to take a picture of them and put them in a file on your phone. I have one for each of my sons of the pictures. And we are at time now. It's 1025. That concludes this session. Thank you all for attending. If you have any more questions, please feel free to reach out to the panel here at the meeting or contact anybody staff at the FFB if you need a particular question answered. Thank you.